Welcome back to the Penny Lane Podcast. Today, Blaine is joined by Richard Miller of Handel Stats. During the first part of this two-episode series, Rich discusses his transition from the floor to electronic trading. He highlights the many intricacies of the modern market, such as order spoofing and high-frequency algorithms that traders today have to compete against. A big thank you to our sponsor, Roback Clothing. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Rich, hi, welcome to the Penny Lane Podcast. How are you? Thank you, Penny Lane. Um, uh, it's a cool morning here in Colorado, but I'm, uh, I'm nice and cozy and ready to chat. I'm so glad. I can see your jacket there in the background, and I've gotten to know more and more about these jackets hanging out with uh, Anthony Cardelli and Pax. And I'm just, please, please tell me about yours. That is my jacket this, from the day I walked off the trading floor. Um, and I, I still have a seat on the exchange and the, right above it is, uh, you know, they, they demutualized and I had one share of stock put into a stock certificate, you know, and, uh, I framed it and, uh, um, everybody had different color jackets and, you know, sometimes, um, uh, you you could if you were a trader an independent trader you could make up your own jacket um uh i this i cleared a house uh called hammer trading and the the number of the house was 245 so that's on the bottom of my uh badge but also hammer traders wore that uh that jacket type and when you're in the pit if you saw the jacket you would know that it was a hammer house so if you were trading with somebody and writing on your card um, you, you have to write who who, uh, who the opposite trader was, what the opposite house was, uh, the price that you traded at, the quantity that you traded, and then the time. And time was uh, put into, they had like these little 15-minute time brackets, so they were lettered. So you'd, you'd write quantity, trader house, price, time bracket. And what are your initials? Um, mine, that was just Rich Miller's my name. So I had RMIL. And, and what did uh, people call you? Rimmel. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love, I'm so intrigued by this entire culture. I've always been very intrigued by it, but then getting to hear the stories from Anthony and Pax, so I'm like, what a place that will just never exist in the same way again. What a little moment in time there that's just fascinating to me. Well, it wasn't really a, a moment in time. I mean, they traded there for over 100 years in Chicago. And I, I mean, it was it was thrilling. I'm, I'm not going to tell you it was it was it was absolutely thrilling. It was it was I looked forward to going to work every day. Um, uh, and the exchanges, you know, served a very useful purpose. Um, if if you go back, the Board of Trade was the first exchange in Chicago, and then the Mercantile Exchange started in like the, I think, early teens or 1920s. And it used to be called the Butter and Egg Exchange. Uh, and the Board of Trade, of course, prior to uh, there being a, a, a place for, for grains to trade, farmers way out in the middle of nowhere had no idea what prices were. Um, so they were dependent on local grain elevators 
to, you know, give them a fair price. And of course, quite often they were taken advantage of. So the exchanges arose out of a need for price discovery and public price discovery. And that's why they traded them in a pit, the same way they traded stocks at a post on a stock exchange. So uh, price discovery was open and public. So there couldn't be any secret deals. So you knew what everybody was paying at any given point in time. And uh, hence, that's, that's why uh, the need for speculators arose. Because if you have hedgers, whether they're, you know, buying grain to make bread or uh, s selling their grain in the, you know, their producers selling their grain and wanting to hedge. I mean, th they aren't always ready to transact business at any given point in time. So you have speculators that uh, are willing to, for small amounts of money, willing to buy and sell. And uh, futures contracts, uh, you know, arose to, to fulfill that need. And actually the first futures that were ever traded were rice contracts in Japan hundreds of years ago. I, can I have a question? Why is it called futures if it's commodities? Um, like oh, okay. Rice is a commodity. So where did the term future come from? Some uh, hedgers do forward contracts. Okay. Um, uh, you, you're, you're like, say you raise uh, corn and you can, and, and somebody needs to buy corn. So they'll, you'll sign a contract. I will produce at the end of this season, you know, 10,000 bushels of corn. We'll do it at this price and I'll deliver it on this date. And it was a contract between two individuals, mm -hmm. forward contract. Futures contracts are the same thing. They, it's, it's, it's a contract with a, um, a specified grade in the case of corn, specified grade, specified quantity, specified delivery points. And then of course, uh, there's, there's what they call basis. So if you deliver at a different delivery point than whatever it is, there's a basis. And you know, some, some of the contracts have that written in, but they, they also have a, a, a uh, performance state basically is, is what it is. So it's a performance state out in the future, hence futures contract. Got it. And um, the exchanges, um, the way that the way those contracts work is the, so the exchanges standardize the contract. So it's a standardized contract. Um, and what the exchanges actually did is they took Instead of instead of when you traded, like I would trade one of these contracts with you, uh, uh, and you'd be on the other side. The exchanges actually take the uh, uh, counterparty risk. So when you trade a contract, the counterparty to your contract is actually the exchange. It's not the other side that actually did the trade with you, and the exchange remains counterparty to all the contracts. And then the way. Uh, the, the way that works is, is then they monitor their, the, the clearing houses to make sure everybody, you know, has enough money and it, it, it gets kind of, kind of involved, but, um, it, it may, it basically, uh, you don't have to worry about the opposite brokerage house going under because the exchange is the counterparty and they monitor the, uh, participants of the marketplace clearing houses, mm -hmm. um, like, like I cleared through Hammer, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I had money in my account and uh, segregated funds in my account that I traded on. But ultimately, and, and Hammer would monitor me and my trading. And when you were on the floor in those days, they had to trust you. I mean, it's a complete total, you know, because I could go down there and trade 10 times more than what I have or lose 10 times more than what I have. And if I lose it, my clearinghouse is responsible for the debit. Uh-huh. The, and the exchange monitors the clearinghouse. They don't monitor me. And then my firm monitors me. And um, when you were trading on the floor, as I say, there was a lot of trust that went, went you know, between you and your clearinghouse. And, um, uh, but anyway, you know, to get back to the futures thing, I, I think that kind of explains some of the risk. I will say one thing. The floor not only was an exciting place, there, there was a, a lot of uh, information that tra- was transacted. And the as I, as I say, way back in the 1800s, the need for public dissemination of prices is what really started the exchanges. And once those prices were public, if you were if you were a, far, a corn farmer in Iowa, you knew what they were trading grain in Chicago for because there was telegraph wires. And, you know, so your local elevator couldn't say, I'll give you a dollar a bushel when it was trading for two, you know, which which happened prior to that. I want to um, I actually have a, a question here. So we just interviewed Oliver Kell, who was uh, one of the trading champions in 2020. And during that interview, he told me that his dad was a market maker. And I've always heard the term market maker, but I never like really, really understood what that meant. So I text Anthony during the interview and I'm like, Anthony, what's what exactly is a market maker? And he said, it's someone who provides liquidity, which I've been sort of like learning a little bit more about. But could you expand on that a little bit? Because I'm not the only person who doesn't understand that. Bo. Blaine. We're hat twins. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. I'm so excited that we're sponsored by Roback now. I have been wearing my gear ever since it came in the mail, and I love the colors, but I especially love this little dog. I wore him to the pool last night, and people were giving me the thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah, this stuff is awesome. I had um, heard about it before and always wanted some, but now that I have it, it has exceeded all of my expectations. Is this your first time receiving a gift in the mail from a company and like opening it and checking out the product? Uh, it might be. It certainly is associated with the podcast. I was, I have gotten those before and I was blown away by the quality of this product. It far exceeded what I thought that it would be. And I truly think I'm just going to like live in it all fall. Yeah. It's so comfortable. Yeah. I've been playing golf a lot this summer. And so I like all my golf gear. But the thing about golf shirts is like the sleeves are always too long and they're always too baggy. And like, you know, I'm relatively in shape guy. So this fits me perfectly. I still have full range of my arms to swing a golf club. And like I could wear this doing anything, not just golf. Like they got hoodies they got quarter zips it's like nice and stretchy i love every single thing i got me too me too i love it it all looks so good together it's part of a set and i feel so thrilled to be able to offer our listeners a 20 percent off code which is penny 20 (laughs) 
All right. So you go to roback.com, which is R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com, and you just enter Penny 20. You get 20% off. And thank us when your order arrives because it's lovely. You also know how much I love uh, opening experience. Like I'm, I'm such a snob about packaging and the way things are presented. And it was a treat. Yeah, the shit's awesome. I'm not like, yeah. don't even have to like, I would just promote this to anybody regardless of a sponsor or whatever because this shit slaps. Also, you've already been like low key pumping out the penny 20 to your closest friends because you really believe in it. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm sending this to all my friends because it's shit I think that they're going to want anyways. So, you know, why not take advantage of the discount and rep it everywhere? Totally. Thank you, Roback. We appreciate you. When we were on the floor, there were floor brokers that filled orders for other firms. So, so say you were a retail customer, and retail meaning that you could you could be a commercial, re, you know, customer or a speculator retail customer, uh, and you would phone in your orders uh, to the to the floor, if if and and then. Uh, depending upon, we'll just, we'll just, the, the, the order would go to the broker in the pit and the broker on the, the top step brokers were, were the, uh, you know, on the outer ring were the uh, order fillers. And then inside were all the traders that traded against them, the uh, uh, market makers, you know, s- speculating for their own account. So, uh, so the floor broker would execute outside orders coming in. And floor traders would trade against those orders. And now some of the orders were speculative orders. I mean, we, as a market maker in the pit, we were we were literally making one tick wide markets where, you know, you as a speculator were obviously looking for more than one tick if you're putting an order in from the outside. Uh, and, and as I alluded to earlier, um, because hedgers, are are not always in the marketplace. You need speculators to to provide interim liquidity. Mm-hmm. You, you know, speculators get a bad name, but they provide a very useful service. Um, I actually I have I have a little blurb on the free section of my website when when I talk about speculators and hedgers. It's it's like one page or two pages long, because because as I say, a lot of people that aren't knowledgeable say, oh, speculators are bad. No, speculators are good because if you don't have speculators, speculators, besides providing liquidity at times when larger, uh, uh, when hedgers aren't, you know, out to do things and and they take risk doing it. But, uh, and a lot of, uh, a lot of speculators uh, spend a lot of time studying the market. I mean, they're very, they, they, you know, they know what news affects the market. Whether they're, whether, you know, you have, you probably know people that trade in one or two different stocks and they just follow those stocks. They, they know everything about the company. They know earnings releases. They know expectations about new products. They know sales stuff. Um, and, and, you know, they trade uh, shorter term. That knowledge, and, and even if they're trading technically, the knowledge of what they're putting in is, is input into the market. Um, uh, so, th- so there's, there's the, and the floor, I mean, people used to, you, you could find out anything you wanted about a market because a, a lot of the guys that were trading inside the pit knew their markets backwards and forwards. I mean, the, uh, you know, if people were trading in the grain pit, they knew, you know, 
if it was ADM buying or selling, you know, because they're processing grains or uh, if it was a, you know, a, a feed company buying or selling or, or hedging and, and they hedge their needs. A perfect example of something that a lot of people are, I think are aware of is, you know, back, this was back several years ago. Southwest Airlines used to be, was one of the first airlines to like really, really, really do a great job of hedging in uh, the uh, fuel uh, spectrum. I mean, so they, they could, you know, they could reasonably price tickets because one of the, mo the, the most, the largest uh, cost of airlines is fuel. Mm -hmm. And if you lock in your, if you hedge in your fuel cost, you know, um, for a long time, what the price of, you know, your, your profitability on, you know, ticket prices is going to be. So, so, you know, and, and this is one of the examples I used that, that if it weren't for speculators, you, you couldn't have an efficient market. And if you didn't have an efficient market, even an airline like Southwest could not hedge their fuel costs. Mm -hmm. And if they can't hedge their fuel costs, they can't provide cheap tickets for their customers. Right. So you're a direct beneficiary of, of, of that. And it's the same way with food because, because uh, farmers can hedge their grain and, you know, they know what their cost is for production. And, uh, you know, sometimes things will happen that, that they'll want to hedge part of their production. And, and a lot of, a, a lot of farmers, if they're big farmers, you know, that have bank loans, the banks are like, you're going to hedge part of your crop because if prices go down, you know, we know that our loan will be protected, especially if, if grain prices are high and, and, uh, uh that, but I mean, my, my brother-in-law has a, has a farm in Iowa and, you know, uh, he doesn't farm it. He's got a farmer that farms uh, with him, but, uh, they hedge part of their grain crop every year. They don't hedge the whole, whole thing, but they hedge part of it. And, um, you know, whether it's, and feedlots that, you know, whether whether they're feeding or, or chicken farmers, you know, Tyson's, they hedge their needs for uh, corn and whatnot for animal feed. Um, and as uh, airlines hedge fuel costs, uh, Trucking companies hedge fuel costs, uh, and obviously producers of oil uh, hedge their production, mm -hmm. or at least some of it. Especially if if prices go, get really high, they're like locking in that price to like locking in that price. a certain amount that they will make that year, or they'll get that price for a while is that like, like farmers that sell their sell their grain at you know say corn's trading five dollars a bushel mm -hmm. and they sell it at five dollars a bushel you know for a, a new crop contract uh so uh like december corn uh -huh. and and uh, they've 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 got to deliver by december or or take the contract off i mean they they may know they're going to deliver long before december but um uh, if they sell it at five dollars a bushel and it goes up to five fifty, they only get five. Uh -huh. um, but a lot of times they have they have arrangements with you know the grain elevator who has an arrangement with the bank, and if it goes to five fifty, the bank lends the money to you know make the margin calls while they're while they're there. But if it goes down to if it, if the price goes down to four dollars, 
they've sold their they've sold their corn at five. Yeah. So and, and here's what happens when they get, get to, to to delivery time and they deliver their corn to the elevator, they sell it. They they sell it for four. Uh, and and all they do is buy back their uh, futures contract, so they've shorted it. And whenever they deliver, they buy back the futures contract at whatever price it is. And if it's higher, they lose on the futures contract. But they'll their 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 grain is probably selling higher in the cash market. But there's there's they still don't make that extra fifty cents. But, but it allows people to do business because they know that they have a certain amount of profit coming in because of the contract, because they've already locked that in. Right. Um, okay. and, you know, here's a, a, a simplistic advantage was you have, a, you have a family, you have kids, and you, you say, you know, prices are going up of, of food costs and my kids are growing. They're, they're going to eat me out of house and home. And, you know, say you spend... $300 a week on food, groceries, but you're afraid that it's going to go to 400 by the end of the year. So you buy, a, you know, you buy a grocery contract that says, I'll pay $300 a week between now and the end of the year. And if it goes up, you know, you'll, you'll pay more for your groceries, but you'll be making it on the futures contract. So uh, you lock in your $300 a week cost, but say you're wrong. <laughs> You know, say all of a sudden food prices start to go back down or, you know, they go to they go to two fifty a week. But you bought that contract, you know, to to supply at three hundred. I mean, you'll you'll start buying at two two fifty, but you locked in your price at three hundred. So your cost is three hundred. Regardless of what you do, that's your cost. And and, you know, who would take the other side of that? Um you know, a grocery store might say, well, we know food prices are going to go down. Well, we'll you want to buy it at $300 a week? We'll sell you all you want at $300 a week. Yeah. Um, and that's that's just the way it works. Uh, the one thing that I will say about futures trading in the pit on the floor, and this was the whole reason for public open outcry. Um, it was open outcry because everybody could hear it. Everybody could see it. So prices were transparent. And I thought electronic trading would be a little more transparent than it is. All we see is the price. We don't see who's doing it. And there is a lack of transparency, whether people recognize it or not in electronic trading. Um, when we first started electronic trading, we got to see the opposite house of who we were trading with. So and and uh that provided transparency i actually believe that with all electronic trading today whether it's stocks or futures or options that all the information should be disseminated who how many contracts are traded is already done the price it's done at is 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 already done but i think the counterparties to the trade should be disclosed too reason being um you have a lot of HFTs and, and a lot of ways that the system can be gained. They can, and, and now the exchanges assumedly watch over this and they, when somebody spoofs, you don't know who's spoofing, but if, if, if they had to put it, if they had to, you know, and, and there's not as much spoofing as there used to be, there still is spoof, you know what spoofing is, right? Nope. 
Oh. <laughs> Spoofing is is uh somebody putting an order that they have no intention of taking. So, yes. so they, yes. they offer 10,000 contracts and then all of a sudden the offer is gone. Yes. 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 Okay. That's, that's spoofing. If they, if, if when you put an offer in, if you had to show the house that you were, you know, what you were doing and you spoofed, everybody would know who did it. Right. The problem with electronic trading is, is a lot of these big HFTs say, well, we weren't spoofing. We're trading such size that, you know, somebody else showed this, so we're able to show that. I, I, t I tell people constantly, don't pay any attention what's bid and offered it, it, because it's meaningless. It's right. not real. Right, right. Um, so if, some, if there's a 10,000 contract offer, I have a funny story about that, actually. Uh, don't pay attention to it unless it trades there. Um, and if you, if you have a position on and somebody and you're long and somebody offers 10,000 contracts in front of you, Oh my God, I'm wrong. I better get out. No. Right. And that happens all the time. It happens all the time. Right. And this is, this is one of the reasons I believe that a, they should disclose who's bidding and offering and who's doing that. And after a trade is consummated, um, it, it should be the same way. They should disclose both parties to the trade. Um, you know, at least the house. I don't, they could put my name on the trade. You know, they could put my badge on the trade. I don't care um, because I'm a small trader. I'm not going imp to impact the market that much. And if people see me trading, maybe they'll say, oh, there's rich trading. Time to take the other side because we know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of spoofing, um, with electronic trading, they have the ability, if you don't know, to paint the tape. Yes. Uh, Yes. You know what you yes. know painting tape is? Okay. Yes. They can they can actually run through a bunch of orders and, and they're on the other side, trading against themselves, but to paint a higher price because uh you know they may see a, a gap in prices someplace and buy everything up to the gap and then you know, chase everybody out, paint the tape, and you're all of a sudden you're stopped out and da 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 da. -da. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's another reason why I think they should disclose the counterparties to every trade because a you'd see them. I mean, because and and some of these HFTs would say, "Oh, well, that was my buy algo trading against my sell algo. They're separate." Well, and the exchanges assumedly have in place uh, software now that um, doesn't allow them to trade against their own orders. But how do you know if, it's, I mean, some of these HFTs and some of these firms are so big, how do you know they don't have another brokerage house in uh, Indonesia or, you know, Frankfurt or London that's actually the other side of their trade, but it shows as a different firm? You don't know that. You don't know. You don't know. And I think there's certain things that you could do to, you know, uh, to dis to figure that out, and and the first step in doing that would be to a disclose the opposite parties to every trade because if you saw a, on a regular basis where somebody traded against the same house, you know, on a market move that you know moved up or down, and you know a, a painting the tape kind of move, I mean, it wouldn't take too many of those before you finally figure out oh 
uh, there's something wrong here. Yeah. Anyway, that's why I would like more disclosure with electronic trading and it's not as transparent as it could be. Um, the other thing is that, you know, on the floor, um, things moved at a human kind of speed and that's not bad. Uh, you, you don't have a flash crash type situation where, you know, they blamed it on a, a, a couple of different people. And uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think it was, it was true. But the other thing is, is that when you had the pit and when you had guys in the pit, everybody was watching everybody else. And every, like everybody knew I was like a, basically a one lot trader when I was trading in the pit. When I was in the options, it was a different deal because I was with the group so I could trade whatever size I wanted. But, but Everybody knows. So if so, if a little trader all of a sudden said, you know, I'll, I'll bid on a thousand, they were like, uh, they could write you up. Be literally, they could write you up for for making bids and offers that uh, confuse the market, which mm -hmm. is a trading infraction. So there was there was hundreds of eyes in every pit watching everybody do everything, and it it was very transparent and allowed for less shenanigans to take place like I think potentially could be taking place now and I mean one of the things that I really dislike about you know some of the options that trade not necessarily the futures options but stock options and index options on like the CBOE is subpenny pricing because these HFTs can you know they can bid or offer a ten thousandth of a penny less than you and they get filled before you do I that that is totally not and and you know they'll say well you could do the same thing but most of your brokerage houses don't you don't allow you to do it they allow you to trade in full pennies and that's it uh -huh. and i just think that's wrong so i would like to see sub penny pricing eliminated i'd actually uh, i would actually and as far as the spoofing goes one of the other things that could be done and i've said this for years i've said it to the people at, at, at the exchanges um if you charged one penny or even a tenth of a penny for a cancellation, it wouldn't wouldn't matter to you or me, because but if but if you have somebody putting in ten thousand orders a second, you know, or ten thousand contracts a second, bidding an offer, pulling them, I mean, uh, even a, even even at a penny, if it cost them ten dollars for every time they flashed in an order, they wouldn't do it very very long. Mm -hmm. um, the the other thing that could be done is you could make them if if they're going to put in orders if everybody had to put in an order if if you put it in it's got to stay in for one second you know you can't boom boom you know that mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that could be done I think to you know stop some of the misbehavior um, and if you made large orders uh, say okay you put a large order and you put a ten thousand lot in it's got to stay in for five seconds I mean. It would end the bullshit. Originally, I thought electronic trading would be uh, a, a level playing field. And, and the reason it, it had that level playing field, be, because there was a lot of pit politics, too. Um, I was a one lot trader. So if a broker came out with a big trade, you know, a big order to fill, he'd, he'd go to the big traders right away. And even if I was bidding, you know, first, I wouldn't get filled because he's got he's got 100 to do. And I'm, he's not going to trade one with me when he's got 100 and 100 more to do behind it. It's going to look like two or three big traders. And, um, you know, uh, maybe you cut him off and maybe you cut off the floor broker, uh, cut him off in traffic on the way to work. And he goes, that rich guy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll get even with him. I won't trade with him today. <laughs> you know, oh, come on. I'm sorry. I'll never cut you off again. You know, I mean, uh, 
So I would love to talk about just because um, I know Pax well and I know about his transition from floor trading to electronic trading and that that was, you know, something he had to really learn and change kind of the way he traded. I'd love to hear about you transitioning. Well, um, I actually had like a, a different kind of transition story. Um, so, so I had been trading on the floor, um, and in 1994, um, the, the from like 92 to 94, there was very low volatility in the, and I was trading S and P options. And I had been doing a little bit of trading overnight, and I had a friend who was uh, the the CME was just starting with Globex, and I put in like orders overnight. Um, to, because I had an options position. So I would like, you know, scalp gamma negative or positive gamma scalps um, by leaving orders in overnight. A, f a friend of mine uh, was doing marketing for Globex, which was the first uh, electronic trading system for the CME. And as I said, the CME was using this, they, they did a partnership with Reuters to use their feedback on their system. And the original, uh, Reuters system that the CME used, they used loop landlines to each terminal. So there was, there was no internet then. So, the, the, uh, and I had a terminal in my house. So there was literally like six phone lines and I lived like 25 miles north of the city. Um, and it went down to the, these loop landlines went down to the uh, host matching engine. It would put my orders in and trades. It was very slow. I think the original system would do something like 15 or 20 transactions, TPSs, transactions per second, which means if you put an order in, that's one transaction. If you cancel the order, that's another. And, you know, not that there was a lot of traders, but that wasn't very fast. So uh, this friend um, asked me, He they, the exchange wanted to get more traders trading at night and to get these terminals. And I knew I'd been there. For, I'd already been there for like 12 years at the exchange and had been trading for the last six or seven. And I had been trading electronically. So uh, he said, Rich, why don't you, you know, trading so slow, come and, you know, market this to the other traders. They all know you. We want to get them to trade. We want to get them to take these machines. So I said, okay. So I, in 1995, I worked for nine months for the exchange as an outside contractor to sign up traders. And I, and I trained uh, and signed up like 600 traders to use, to use electronic trading machines. So they got them installed and the exchange was paying for them to be installed in their houses, but it got more liquidity in the system to get it going, which is the exchange, you know, had a, had a way new products, new contracts, they would give incentives to, you know, get it to be used more. And um, that was how they got the Globex system kind of off the ground even more is just to get more traders to provide, to provide liquidity, speculators to, you know, market makers, let's provide some liquidity. But because sometimes at night, even in the S&Ps, there might be a dollar or two between a bid and offer. I mean, instead of a tick, it would be like uh, 39 70 bid at 3972 offer a full two handles. I mean, and, and there was a couple people, uh, well, I know a few people that, uh, four, four in particular that traded and would, you know, in, instead of making a tick on a trade would make a dollar or $2.
Um, and I enjoyed part of that for some period of time. But I, I mean, it's, it's not that it was so liquid that, that you were, you know, getting it all the time because there wasn't that much traded. But anyway, then volatility started to pick back up and the market started to go up in 95. And, you know, and I was like, oh, I got to get back to trading. I, I mean, I've done what I did here. I did this for nine months. It was great. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about electric, electronic trading. I learned how the system worked. And uh, so then then I traded even more. I mean, then electronic trading was getting getting, you know, a lot more liquid. And since we got all those traders to, to start using the system, they would the S&P traders started trading in the morning in, with the numbers that came out at 730 Chicago time, like unemployment or, you know, PPI, CPI, you know, some of those big numbers. And the exchange had terminals on the floor. You could walk up, sign in onto a terminal on the floor, or if you were at home, you could trade off your terminal at home, but you could trade those numbers. And then um, like 15 minutes before the markets, the pits open, the machines shut off. So electronic trading hours would start like 15 minutes after the pits closed and close 15 minutes before the pits open, then all the business would go to the pit. And th there was a few other times that the market would close at night because they'd be cleaning up stuff. But for all practical purposes, that's how it worked. So then in 1997, my friend came down to the floor and I was, I was in the NASDAQ pit, you know, doing pretty well. Because uh, when I went back to the floor, I didn't go back to the group I was with. I, I went on my own, um, totally on my own. And, you know, and I, so I went to the NASDAQ pit because it was kind of an up and coming pit wasn't a lot of traders in it. I was doing well. And, and this guy came to me and said, Hey, Rich, we're going to start a new product. And I really need somebody to support it. We're going to trade mini S and P's side by side with the market during the day. And he goes, I need, I, I need, I'm going to put 10 terminals down on the floor. I need somebody. And you know, you know how to do this. Um, uh, would you support it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it, but you've got to make the terminal on the floor, uh, outside of the pit, my terminal. So if somebody comes and signs on it, onto it and I come in, they have to get off because the way it had worked with the other terminals, like I would go in early in the morning and trade on the terminal. And then once a month, when unemployment would come out, come, come out other bigger traders, or other traders would have their clerks come in, sign into the terminal that I would use. And, 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 and I had traded like every other day of the month and then unemployment came out and some guy had sent his clerk in at two in the morning to log on to the, onto the terminal and lock it up. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go. And, and the old Reuters system, when you set up your pages on the terminal, they were terminal specific. They weren't like internet based that wherever you signed in, you know, you'd get your pages set up the way you wanted to. So you literally had to go back to the same machine. You couldn't move one over because it wasn't set up the way you wanted it set up. So I said, I said, and we were still using the writer system when this first started, started out. So I said, if you make that terminal mine, I'll trade it for 30 days. I'll put up $30,000, make a two sided market. 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, if I'm not making any money or my 30 grand is out, I'm done. I'm going back to the pit. And th there was a reason why I said 30 days. The other thing about pit trading is you had a spot in the pit. Mm -hmm. It was your spot. And 
if you came in and somebody was standing in your spot, you would say, that's my spot. You have to leave. And they had to. Yeah. That it was, it was, it was, I mean, if you didn't, you'd have people killing one another over, over stuff. And, uh, and you could get written up for taking somebody's spot. Well, as long as like, I could go do this for 30 days. And at the end of 30 days, if I came back, it was, it was still my spot. But if I like more than 30 days, they're like, okay, you lost your spot. You weren't there. This guy's been here every day for 30 days. You're out of here. Yeah. You got to go find a new spot. So that that's why I did that, and that that was uh, September. The, the I was right at, right at the end of rollover for September of 1997. Um, so I started trading the E Mini S and P, and I think the first day I don't know we traded two, three, four, five thousand, and by the end of the year it was trading about fifteen thousand contracts a day, and I was trading so three months. Huh? Yeah, for three months, okay. and and then the volume continued to grow. I mean, you know, it went from fifteen to fifty, and um, the way it worked in the original system was like outside people that were trading. You know, then they were trading over the internet, mm-hmm. but they would send their order. Their order would go through their brokerage house into the system. Um, it's not like they were directly entering it, and it was all electronic. I mean. And then we knew who the opposite trader was in the opposite house. You know, it, it would, it would, we had, we had little printers, you know, that would print everything out. So you could look down at the printout and I think you could look at it on the screen too, but for sure you could look at it on the printout. And my printer would just be going bzz, 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 all, all day long because I was trading. I mean, in the, I was, there was only 10 of us. So I was trading like a thousand to 2000 contracts a day, you know, uh, sides. Um, Pretty, pretty shortly. I mean, and, and making literally like one tick markets. I mean, I was, I was literally doing what I said I was going to do. If it, I was buying the bid, selling the offer. And uh, so you, you made know, money after 30 days. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 I always say this, but, um, the, the between the end of the, the end of September and I can't remember what day we started September 20th or you know something like that um, to December uh, so you know basically three months one quarter um, I had one losing day and I made a quarter of a million dollars amazing in like three months so I was like and and it just went up from there and you're like um, I'm never leaving <laughs> well. Yeah, I wasn't going to leave, but, you know, the NASDAQ pit really started taking off then, too. So, you know, it's like I don't know what what I would have been better off doing, Um, but that's what it was. And so and then I started trading spreads because nobody traded the spreads. And um, during contract rollover, when it would go from like, you know, December to March and March to June, you know, those quarterly rollovers and. I was, you know, be, between then and 2000, I mean, rollover would come and in a week and a half, I would make a lot of money um, trading, trading huge, you know, I mean, I'd be, I'd be trading like hundred lot E-minis at a time. Um, and I think, you know, up to like, up to like 500 lots at a time. Amazing. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, so, 
but but then but then these uh, computers got involved. They uh, CTCI computer to computer interface, and that was the beginning of like some of these HFTs. And I, of course, I didn't really recognize that. I'm going like I can do this manually, and and that's when spreads were wider anyway. And and the actual role the uh, futures uh, uh, calendar spreads would um, uh, move more than they did. So. I was I was not only you know I was playing the move in the spread besides everything else and I was I was hedging that I it's hard to explain how I did everything but it was it was a lot of work but it was very lucrative and then the computers got in CTCI and that game kind of went downhill and then the HFTs got in and it was over because they were just so fast I mean uh and um that was, uh, and and I was trading at home. I mean, then it got to where I was. I wasn't even going down to the exchange anymore. I was just trading at home, watching my screens, and and then I, you know, I I was like, well, if I'm doing this from Chicago and I'm here at home, um, I'd rather do it from Colorado. <laughs> so I mean, I moved the the joy of working from home that most of us got during COVID. You and you got a long time ago, and how wonderful! I did, I did, and well, and there was there was I mean there was a couple reasons. Um, first of all, uh, you know Colorado. Well, I, I'm not going to say this. Colorado is a horrible place to live. You don't want to come here. <laughs> uh, I wanted to live here. The other thing I recognized was from from a from from just from a financial standpoint is Illinois had a horrible budget and real estate property taxes were atrocious. Um, I was paying on my house $17,000 a year in property taxes in 2005. And, you know, I'm going like, this is crazy. And, and Illinois, the budget problem in Illinois was well known, you know, back, the, back then. And I'm going like, I'm out of here. If, if, and I literally sold my house at the, at the top of the market in 2005, bought a house out here and, uh, you know, moved and, you know, Illinois' budget problems have continued to be bad. Um, housing prices went way down for a long time. I mean, I think, uh, I, I think you know, now maybe the house that I sold is worth what I sold it for. I mean, it went a little higher, you know, uh, over the last couple of years because interest rates were so low. But it was from, from, a, from a house, you know, move, investment move, best thing I ever did was get out of there and come out here because things out here – this state's the front range has grown by like a million people in since I've been here. Yep. And, uh, what a move, especially in 2005, you missed all of that mess into the, I, my mom owns a luxury real estate company here in Atlanta and we started our company in 2006. So we really, <laughs> we really lived through that and it was, um, it was a time. So great move. Plus my kids were like, I'm going like, if I, if I don't move now, then my kids will be starting, you know, high school. And once they get into high school, I mean, I'm not going to be able to move. I, you know, I'm going to be locked in here. So it's like, I'll be locked in here forever. If I want to move grammar school and just starting middle school, I can go. It's not going to be like, you know, uh, something that, you know, they can't handle. And so everything worked out and I moved out here and it was, it was absolutely the greatest thing I ever did because, I mean, you see my view, I, I showed you a couple of pictures of the view out, out of, 
um, you know, off my back deck and out of my kitchen, my, my master bedroom is, is, it's like, it's just unbelievable did, you know, to wake up did, to that. Did any of your kids go move back or are they all? No, they no, no. They're, um, I, I, my, my oldest daughter just turned 30. She lives in Denver with her boyfriend and she works for like a property management kind of company. And my, uh, my other daughter just turned 26. She's a nurse practitioner and she works in oncology uh, uh, at uh, Anschutz um, uh, Medical Center here, which is the University of Colorado Hospital Medical School. It's, it's a huge facility, it's a big hospital. And uh, she just in May uh, finished, you know, finished her master's and, you know, passed her boards and is now a nurse practitioner in oncology. And she had been in oncology, uh, uh, and BMT, uh, nursing bone marrow transplant, um, at the hospital for the past, um, four, four or five years. So she worked there for a couple of years and then she went to, she worked for like two and a half years. She worked seven days a week. Mm -hmm. School, clinicals, nursing. She worked, you know, and uh, but now she, and she just started, uh, you know, a couple months ago um, doing that. I'm really proud of her. She's uh, she's she's got a you know she's doing a great thing. She's in a great profession, um, and she's um, she says in a year she's going to start working on her doctorate. So amazing! You must yeah. be so proud. That's so wonderful. And, and me, I'm sitting here doing what I'm doing. Uh, oh, so to get to what I was saying, um, then we had the financial crisis in 2008. And, and of course, after that, um, HFTs really dominated the market. So everything I had done, you know, like shorter term trading, speculation trading for a tick was gone. And I struggled and struggled and struggled. And I said, you know, I think I need to be more quantitative about what I'm doing. <clears throat> so I called up a friend of mine who had, um, uh, when I was in the options group and Dave and I had remained friends for, he still lives in Illinois, but we've just remained friends. We've been friends for like since 1990. So I'm, do the math <laughs> over 30 years. And I called Dave and I said, Dave, I got this great idea. I want to do this quantitative studies and do this. And, you know, I was thinking Dave will help me. He goes, Rich, that's a great idea. It, it's, it will probably be, you know, it'll be really beneficial. I'm sure you got a lot of great insights, but you're going to have to learn to do it yourself. You can't hire it done. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I don't have time to do it. <laughs> and, uh, if you hire some programmer to, to program what you think, he's going to come back in, you know, a couple of weeks with an eight or $10,000 bill. And you're going to, you're going to say, but that's not what I asked for. And he said, you got to learn to do it yourself. And Dave is a Microsoft, one of those Microsoft five-star experts, whatever they call them. Um, he goes, you know, just learn to do Excel. You, you know, a little bit of it now. Uh, I, I know. And I, I said, yeah. And he said, uh, It'll take you a while, but just learn it and um, you can do what you want to do. Uh, you'll, you'll find your own answers. And he was right. Because of the Internet, I, I was able you can I, I, I found a place where I took some uh, courses and course material and, you know, I, novice, intermediate expert and, uh, you know, so now I program in Excel and VBA. Um, 
and I'm, I'm, I, I think in the last four and a half years, I've programmed over 11,000 hours. Amazing. So, and I say, I say the first 2,500 hours of that, I was just learning to do things. And the rest of it is, I mean, I have databases on, on every, you know, all the indices and, and, uh, the VIX, uh, futures. And, uh, I just keep building more and more sophisticated programs. I'll show you some of the results of some of my work and there's not, there's nothing I can't do. I mean, sometimes it takes me a, a little while to figure out how to do things, but there's nothing I can't do in Excel and VBA, uh, given the time. And I, and I've, I've actually learned a lot of things doing this quantitative stuff that I would have never discovered had I not done it. Um, and I'm unlocking things about opening gaps, about range trades during the middle of the day. Um, I'll, uh, and, and, and I have stats on all kinds of stuff. Uh, and in fact, I'd, I'd love to show you some of them. If, if you want to see them, we can look at some of that. Stay tuned for part two of the interview where Rich discusses his quantitative approach to the markets. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the Penny Lane podcast makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional or financial advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, the Penny Lane podcast does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. The third-party materials or content of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Penny Lane podcast. The Penny Lane podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein.